just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Saturday. The weekend is here, so hopefully it won't be quite as crazy as what we normally see during the week. But you can bet that Monday starts off and there'll be all kinds of news and crazy shit going on. And we'll be here for it here on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Now, if you were listening yesterday, you heard the regular Rational Boomer podcast, and then you heard a second podcast where I brought in our reoccurring guest host, Ed. Now, I always enjoy it when Ed joins me on the Rational Boomer podcast. It's almost kind of a different show than when I'm just doing it. I've known Ed for a long time, 25, 30 years, and we spent a long time on the radio together. So we built kind of a rapport between us. We're used to the timing and all that kind of stuff when we're on the air together. And it works out really well. Ed's a bit older than I am, maybe 10 years, and he's from the South. I'm from the Midwest. So he comes at this with a totally different perspective. And I appreciate that. I think that's important when we do the Rational Boomer podcast. In addition to that, it's been a while since we've had a listener on the show. And I know a lot of people like those shows. I like those shows because it's always interesting to me to hear from listeners. And as I've always said, this show isn't about the Rational Boomer, that being me. That's not the case. We're all Rational Boomers to some extent. And that's why we've kind of collected here on this particular podcast. Well, come tomorrow on Sunday, I have a show with uh, a listener, and she is not a rational boomer. In fact, she's a rational millennial. Her name is Leanna, and uh, she's 27 years old. And it always amazes me when I get the young people listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. I appreciate it immensely. I'm glad to know that some of the younger people listen and get something out of the show. Well, she's on the show tomorrow, and I will tell you up front, we've already recorded this today or yesterday, so it'll be on Sunday. But she's a very bright, articulate young woman. She's very thoughtful, and uh, I love talking to her. It was a great show, so don't miss it. That's tomorrow on the Rational Boomer podcast, or Sunday. All right, let's get into this one. We have one email to address before we get started. This one comes from a gentleman by the name of Brett. He says, Hi, Mike. Liked today's podcast about the loss of Secret Service text messages. The same is going on here in Wisconsin. The corrupt former judge, Michael Gableman, running the Red Publican election investigation here in Wisconsin, has been held in contempt of court for deleting emails and texts regarding his investigation. This idiot, who has spent over a million dollars in taxpayer money so far, has tried to claim he isn't required to keep records of his investigation, even though two courts have now told him he is subject to record retention laws. It is widely believed by many looking into the crook's activities Uh, is that he is deleting records that don't support his election fraud theory. All this is just more of the same. Red publicans will lie, cheat, and break the law to protect their power and keep themselves in office. 
later. Brett. Yeah, you know, Brett, that's the thing that uh, amazes me. I know a little bit about the story you're talking about with this, I don't know, former politician in Wisconsin who's looking into the election fraud that doesn't exist. Um, I've been hearing he's been getting a lot of heat, really not following rules, spending a lot of money, and getting no information. I'm in Minnesota, so I go to Wisconsin frequently. I like Wisconsin. I like the people in Wisconsin. But some of the politics in Wisconsin, pretty fucked up. And this Michael Gableman, he is amongst the most fucked up at this point. I find it really strange when you look at what's going on in Wisconsin and with the uh, Department of Homeland Security and the Secret Service, the ridiculousness about them saying, oh, we lost the texts. That's something a middle schooler might say. We lo- I lost my test. I can't find it. Oops. You wouldn't expect that out of a uh, uh, government official, whether it be state or federal. That's a pretty lame excuse. But somehow, they still try to get away with it. I think the important thing we have to understand is that uh, when we're talking about technology, just because you throw away a phone doesn't mean the data is gone. There are ways to get it back from the phone company or other situations or people they sent texts to. It'll show up there. But it is certainly a red flag, and it is certainly troubling knowing that these people are are specifically and intentionally trying to hide texts and emails. All we can be led to believe if they are trying to hide these texts is that there is something bad there, something they don't want us to know. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I don't know if they think it's because they have no other choice. They're just taking a shot. But this idea of saying, whoops, those texts are gone, is just so lame, so childish, so stupid, and totally ineffective. The question I have is, are they that stupid to think that will work? Or do they think we're stupid and they can con us and say, oh, okay, they're gone? It's really disturbing seeing what's going on in politics today because the corruption and the criminality and the immature behavior is right out front. It's right out front in our face, and they're daring us to question them on it. And we do, and they fail, and it's just, it's just fucking ridiculous. So, Brad, I'm aware of some of the issues you have in Wisconsin, and it is troubling to see what is happening and how this clown got the opportunity to investigate something that doesn't exist and has the ability to spend a million dollars of Wisconsin taxpayers' money. I would assume that most of the people in Wisconsin are appalled by this, but apparently there is enough uh, smaller group that supports it for whatever reason. These people are desperate to find out that there was some election fraud. And when they're shown that there was no election fraud, that's not enough. They could not be wrong. So it's just a matter of, in their mind, to keep digging. They're going to be sorely disappointed and embarrassed. I think that's where we're headed with on the federal level with Donald Trump and the uh, trump and and in some of these states. Ultimately, there is going to be nowhere more to go, no questions to be asked, and they will be embarrassed. And what they'll probably do is run away and, and just not talk. They'll never own up to the fact that they were wrong.
All right. There's been a lot of news going on, and John Stewart has been in the news a lot. Former TV guy, comedian, very funny guy. But what he's doing now is very serious. Now, during an appearance on MSNBC's Morning Joe, TV host and commentator John Stewart rained hell on Republicans in the Senate for killing a bill that would supply much-needed help to military veterans facing crippling illnesses due to the exposure of burn pits overseas. Now, Stewart, who has become the country's most prominent advocate for the bill, lashed out at Republicans for killing the bill that they had previously supported in massive numbers and accused them of cynically playing to the extreme right wing that doesn't want to see President Joe Biden sign the bill. See, that's the crazy thing about this bill, uh, providing money to those people that are suffering or have died from these burn pit exposures. They passed the bill. And if you listen to the podcast I did with Ed, Ed pointed out that what happened was the House passed the bill, then it went to the Senate, and there was some miswording in like one sentence. It didn't really change anything. It was just a technical thing. So the Senate sent it back to the House. After having voted to pass it in big numbers, sent it back to the House, the House changed it and then sent it back, and then they didn't vote for it. They blocked it. Is it because they changed that little line in, in, in the bill? No, no, it's not that. It's because they were butthurt. As I pointed out in the previous podcast, it all started out with this bill for the semiconductors. We're having problems getting computers for cars. These semiconductors are coming from China, and it's slow or whatever's going on. We've got cars sitting on lots that can't be used because they don't have the computers. And that's causing problems with our economy and in the car business. So the bill presented by the Democrats and Joe Biden was essentially to have money available to create companies in this country that could produce those semiconductors so we wouldn't have to count on China. Well, I think everybody in a bipartisan way can agree to that. You would think the Republicans would be all over that. But here's what happened. The bill should have passed. Republicans and Democrats alike should have passed it with no problem. And ultimately they did. But of course, Mitch McConnell isn't happy with that. He goes to them and says, look, we'll help you pass this, even though we like it too, but we'll help you pass this. But no more spending or taxing bills after this. And, of course, Chuck Schumer said, yeah, that's cool. We'll do that. So they passed the semiconductor bill. Within hours after that, Chuck Schumer and Manchin announced that they have a new spending bill taking pieces of the Build Back Better bill and raising taxes on rich people, and um, they can pass it in reconciliation. Well, of course, Mitch McConnell was furious. All the Republicans are furious because they got played, which is ironic. This is the kind of game, this is the kind of strategy and trick that the Republicans constantly pull on the Democrats. So now these guys are very upset by the fact that they got played. So what do they do? They're ranting and raving and all kinds of rhetoric. But they got to take it out on the Democrats, somehow own the Democrats to pay them back for this misdeed. So what do they do? 
they shut down the bill to give money to veterans who were exposed to burn pits. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. What they did is they sacrificed these people that are sick and dying, the veterans who they claim to support immeasurably, and they did it strictly to, to uh, um, own the libs. These people are in office to protect us, to do our bidding. But they don't do that. They are in it for their own enrichment, for their own egos. And when somebody does what Schumer and Manchin did a couple of days ago, uh, they get mad and they're going to take it out on the libs, but they can't take it out directly on the libs. So they will take it out on the, uh, um, the veterans. Now, there was a video out that I saw, and it was kind of disgusting. Right after the vote, when they blocked the bill, there was a group of Republican senators standing around, and they were excited. They were giggling, patting each other on the back. Ted Cruz was uh, fist-bumping with people. They were so happy that they owned the libs. And the funny thing is, for as happy as they were in celebrating this win Not one of them appeared to be thinking about the veterans who are very sick, very ill, and dying. They didn't care about that. Those veterans to them were just collateral damage to get what they wanted to get. And that is despicable. You military folks that vote Republican, you need to know this. You need to see this because you act like they want to do your bidding. They, you act like they're doing you favors because they tell you they support you. But when they come down to the moment in time when you need them the most, they told you to fuck off. You need to understand that. Now, during his MSNBC appearance, Stewart also focused on the majority of his fury over the betrayal at Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley for celebrating after the bill was shot down and then accused them of lying about their motivations. I want you to fact check that while I'm sitting here, Stewart told host Willie Geist, did Ted Cruz and all of those Republicans who voted yes on this bill and then switched their vote to no, was that the provision of how the bill was paid for when they voted yes? Now, Republican Senator Pat Toomey, on the other hand, he's been against this all along. At least he's been a consistent dick says John Stewart, but that's not, this is nothing new, he added. This is how it was paid for. The fix in the House was a tiny constitutional provision. This is the same bill that passed, and by the way, all that nonsense that Toomey says about $400 billion of a slush fund that opens doors to the possibility of, you know, power, who can close that door? The Senate and the House, because they have the power of appropriation. They always have money for war with no guardrails and no oversight, but all of a sudden they get religion on health care bills for veterans, he continued. And I'll say this, the most despicable part of this whole thing is watching on the Senate floor Ted Cruz fist bump and then patting each other on the back when they block this bill. Josh Hawley and Pat Toomey celebrating their victory over veterans with cancer. Way to go, guys. You finally handed it to the big veteran with cancer. Well done, he sarcastically added. And uh, frankly, he's absolutely right. 
Now, the interesting thing is the man who really blocked it is Pat Toomey. And you have to understand, the Republican said, Pat, this is your job. This is what you're going to do. And why Pat Toomey? Well, Pat Toomey is retiring in 2022, uh, and somebody else is going to take his place. And so it was easy for him to do it. He's not going to pay any uh, political price for this. It's going to cost him nothing. But what John Stewart and other people are saying, we need to expose uh, Pat Toomey for what he's done here. Granted, he won't be in politics after it's all said and done, but he's going to be looking for cushy jobs with uh, with PACs or, or, or people of that nature in Washington, D.C. He's probably in line to make a shitload of money. We need to expose him for what he is. Tell people, make it known worldwide that Pat Toomey is a piece of shit, as well as the rest of the Republicans. So that's kind of what we're doing, try, trying to do right now. Pat Toomey is responsible for blocking a bill that helps uh, veterans with cancer, a bill that they voted for and passed days before. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is sad, and this is contrary to the way the Senate is supposed to work in this country. All right, next up, notorious conspiracy theory promoting is again seeking bankruptcy protection after losing a defamation lawsuit after he denied the uh, 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. So um, Alex Jones, who we know, is on trial right now. They're trying to decide how much he's going to have to pay the family members of Sandy Hook after denying that um, kids actually died at Sandy Hook. He talked about crisis actors. He talked about uh, um, it all being a fake and all being a hoax. And then later on, he said, well, I didn't really mean that once he was in line to get sued. The parent of far-right conspiracy website InfoWars filed for U.S. bankruptcy protection, the parent company, parent uh, bankruptcy protection on Friday as the company and its founder, Alex Jones, faces up to $150 million in damage in a trial over longstanding falsehoods he perpetuated about the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. Three other companies associated with InfoWars filed for bankruptcy protection in April, but they voluntarily ended their own case in June after failing to secure a settlement with the plaintiffs in the Sandy Hook defamation lawsuit. InfoWars, IW Health, and Prison Planet were the debtors in that case. Now, the parent company is Free Speech Systems, LLC. The Sandy Hook families have opposed the earlier bankruptcy case as a sinister attempt by Jones to shield his assets from liability stemming from defamation lawsuits they had won against him. Reuters wrote the bankruptcies were filed in the wake of the court judgments that found Jones and his media business liable in a multiple defamation lawsuits after he falsely claimed that the 2012 shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, that left 20 children dead and six school employees dead, as a hoax. Now, he might want to say that he didn't really say that, but the fact of the matter is he did fucking say that. In November, Jones received a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 
Now, Alex Jones reportedly helped organize the rally at the Ellipse on January 6th that immediately preceded the attack on the Capitol, including by facilitating a donation to provide what is described as 80 percent of the funding. The select committee said Mr. Jones spoke at the January 5th rally on Freedom Plaza that was sponsored by the 80 percent coalition. Mr. Jones has stated that he was told by the White House that he, he was to lead a march from the January 6th ellipse rally to the Capitol, where President Trump would meet the group and speak. To, speak. Now, Mr. Jones has repeatedly promoted unsupported allegations of election fraud, including encouraging individuals to attend the ellipse um, on January 6th, implying he had knowledge about the plans of the former president with respects to the rally. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. There is video of him saying, yeah, the president wants me to lead the group over to the Capitol. So there's no denying that. He was involved with the planning of the insurrection. There's no question about that. He was involved in promoting the January 6th insurrection on his show and in Washington, D.C. So as much as he's going to be... be uh, forced to pay something like $150 million to these uh, um, Sandy Hook parents. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think this whole bankruptcy is going to work. Uh, The judicial system will see that he's doing it, trying to hide from it, and they may not allow that to happen. But essentially, Alex Jones's companies are going to be decimated by this. They won't be able to afford this at all. It's not going to work out well for them in the long run. But the important thing to remember is over and above the Sandy Hook situation, he is in the thick of it with the January 6th insurrection. He was part of it. As much as the lawsuit with Sandy Hook is is civil, he may very well find himself in a criminal situation with the January 6th committee. He knows Donald Trump. He was talking to Donald Trump. He was talking to Mark Meadows. He was at the insurrection. He is in the middle of it. He's got way more problems than being sued for $150 million. If he thinks bankruptcy is going to save him, he's sadly mistaken because he could very well go to jail just like Steve Bannon. So Alex Jones is nervous. But, you know, the funny thing about it is he continues to spew lies and bullshit. You know, this arrogance and this ridiculousness continues, even though he's being dismantled by this civil trial. And he knows he's going to be taken apart with the January 6th committee. Somehow he still has this arrogance and still this willingness to lie thinking he's going to get out of this. Alex Jones is not going to get out of this. That man is fucked financially and criminally, potentially. So Alex Jones had his time in the sun, but I'm guessing from here on out, he's pretty much done. He may still spew bullshit, but he's not going to have the freedom and the ability to do it as he once had. Alex Jones is the epitome of fuck around and find out. 
He was arrogant. He spewed lies and conspiracy theories. And now he's going to pay the price. And trust me, there is going to be a price to be paid. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. As I mentioned earlier, we have the Secret Service who lost text messages conveniently on the 5th and 6th of January. Now we have the Department of Homeland Security who claims they've lost text messages and emails in and around January 6th. The scandal over the January 6th evidence that was deleted by the Department of Homeland Security is being investigated by a public official that can't be trusted, a CNN panel explained on Friday. Now, the embattled inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security first learned of the missing Secret Service text messages on May of 2021. Months earlier than previously known and more than a year before he alerted the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 incident, that potentially crucial information may have been erased, according to multiple sources familiar with the matter, CNN reports. Now, earlier this month, Secret Service officials told congressional committees that DHS Inspector General Joseph Kufari, the department's independent watchdog, was aware that the text had been erased in December of 2021, but sources tell CNN the Secret Service had notified Kafari's office of missing text messages in May of 2021, seven months earlier. This is all sounding kind of fishy, don't you agree? I mean, when we're talking about a government, and and specifically when it comes to technology, uh, we're talking about departments that are very conscious and very sensitive to technological issues and saving information and evidence and that sort of thing. It's just all too convenient that both the Department of Homeland Security and the Secret Service, who were in the middle of things during the January 6th insurrection, now all of a sudden can't find these text messages. Now, for analysis, former Trump Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Troy was interviewed by CNN alongside former CIA agent Phil Mudd and government ethics expert Norm Eisen. When you work at senior levels in the Trump administration, you kind of know where people's loyalties lie, Troy said. There is a reason that I went very public with my concerns about the Trump administration rather than going through the traditional whistleblower process, which would have led me to the inspector general's office at the DHS. And I'll just say that there's a level of trust there that you understand. But Troy suggested they may not be text messages to recover. Now, the other part of it is, I've got to tell you, being a Trump administration person, most of the administrations communicated on encrypted signal apps, she revealed. A lot of times these messages were likely disappearing. So they were going into this knowing that they didn't want anybody to see this stuff, which tells you they knew what they were doing was illegal. So when the Department of Justice looks at this and says, well, I wonder what their intent was. Well, they've just told you what their intent was. They knew they were breaking the law. They knew they were being unethical and they were attempting to hide it. And what's more serious than the crime itself? The cover up. And what we're seeing here from the Secret Service and the Department of Homeland Security, the Trump administration, we're seeing a fucking huge cover up. 
This is beyond incompetence, he said. Any inspector general, whether CIA, FBI, Department of Homeland Security, doesn't work for, say, the head of Homeland Security. They work in assets for Congress. I think the inspector general has to go, he said. Later, he said, this is not only an issue of professionalism, but ethics. It can't happen in government. The people who do this have got to go. Here's the thing that you have to understand. The whole point of inspector generals is to be kind of a, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, objective person. It's kind of like the internal uh, internal affairs department and the police department. They're kind of separated. They're in it, but they're separated. And they need to look at these things objectively so they can mete out, you know, infractions or unethical activities or legal activities. But when the inspector general is in on it, well, that whole fucking system just fails. The whole thing becomes corrupt. And I think that's the question they have in mind right now. Is this inspector general tainted or corrupted by the Trump administration? And based on what we're hearing here, the fact that they knew when these text messages went missing and they didn't tell it till much later, you can only assume that there's some cover-up going on here. And if your inspector general is doing the cover-up, you've got some serious fucking problems, some serious problems. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Are they going to be able to get the text messages from the Secret Service and Department of Homeland Safety? I would certainly hope so, and I have to think there is a way to do that. But when you have the inspector general who's helping them hide this, that tells you a lot, too. And uh, they're right. This inspector general needs to go. And then he needs to be investigated, too, because he may be uh, responsible for some criminality as well. That, that's, that's the problem with the Trump administration. From the top all the way down to the bottom, it seems absolutely rotten, absolutely corrupt. And there is very few people in the mix that uh, are reasonable. In fact, a lot of people we're seeing now that are stepping up and speaking out as if they were above it all were as guilty of whatever went on as Donald Trump was. You know, you look at somebody like Cassidy Hutchinson, and you can understand she's a young woman. Her eyes are wide open. She goes into this thing thinking she's got a great job and going to do great things. And then she starts to see all this um, corruption. Where she's different than everybody else, she decided to speak up and speak out in spite of the threats that she's under and tell the truth. Now, all these people that now are all of a sudden saying, oh, I'm going to tell the truth. It's because they see what's happening. They're going to see Steve Bannon go to jail. They're seeing this evidence exposed, and they want to get out in front of it so they can hopefully save their ass. I don't think that they will, but that's what their intention is. What these people are finding out is that they waited too long. Had they stepped away much earlier, they'd probably be safe. They could probably work out a deal. But the fact that they stayed so long, stood behind Donald Trump all this time, in spite of all we've seen, that may not be enough for them to speak out. They might be able to cut some kind of deal, but they're still going to be punished. No question about it. 
Now, here's uh, here's an interesting thing that sounds exciting but may very well not be exciting. The House on Friday passed a bill to ban assault weapons, securing a significant victory for Democrats following, following a spate of mass shootings across the country and marking the first time lawmakers have approved a prohibition on the popular firearms in more than two, week, two decades. Now, there was a moratorium on these fire, uh, firearms at one point. Now, this legislation titled Assault Weapons Ban of 2022 cleared the chamber in a 217-213 vote. Republican reps Chris Jacobs of New York, Ben Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania supported the measure, while Democrat uh, reps Henry Cuellar of Texas, Jared Golden of Maine, Victor Gonzalez of Texas, Kurt Schrader of Oregon, and Ron Kind of of Wisconsin, a Democrat, said no. They said no. I'd like to sit down with these fucking clowns and say, please explain to me why you're against banning assault weapons. What, do you need it for fucking grouse hunting? No, you don't. Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Friday morning that the House would take up the legislation that afternoon, scheduling the last-minute vote days after she said the chamber would punt consideration of the legislation to next month. Now, Democrats have planned to move the assault weapons ban with the community safety legislation under one rule, but ultimately... They decided to consider them separately after some liberals voiced concerns about a lack of accountability in police measures. Now, the the assault weapons ban legislation led by Representative uh, David Ciccolini of Rhode Island and co-sponsored by 207 voting Democrats specifically calls for prohibiting the sale, manufacture, transfer, or import of various semi-automatic assault weapons, semi-automatic pistols, and semi-automatic shotguns, depending on their features. For example, all semi-automatic rifles that can accept detachable magazines and have a pistol grip, a forward grip, a grenade launcher, a barrel shroud, a threaded barrel, or a folding, telescoping, or detachable stock are subject to the ban. Doesn't sound like they're asking a lot. I mean, there is no reason for the average Joe to have one of these weapons. Semi-automatic assault rifles with fixed magazines that can accept more than 15 rounds are subject to the ban, would also be prohibited under the legislation, except those with attached tubular device that can only hold 22 caliber ammunition. Uh, though it received bipartisan support in the House, the legislation has little chance of progressing in the Senate because, of course, the fucking Republicans. Still, House Democrats had pressed leadership for the chance to vote on the measure to send a message that they are fighting for an issue that has increased in popularity in recent years. Now, the question is, why are they doing that? If they know it's not going to pass in the Senate, why would you do that? And here's my thought on it. As we're approaching the midterms, the Democrats want to expose the Republicans for all the bad deeds that they've done. You know, whether it be the abortion um, codification or whether it be this assault rifle ban, they want to put it out there in front of the public and then show who is voting against it. And they will use that 
in the midterms. These people are against banning assault weapons. And I think the Democrats, in addition to the January 6th committee and some of the other investigations, they're going to put up these votes so they can expose these people that are against these obviously important things so they can use it against them in the midterms. I'm just saying. Now, a poll conducted by Fox News in June found 63% of registered voters support banning assault weapons. That's 63% of the country, and that is a poll that was done by Fox, of all people. Former President Bill Clinton enacted an assault weapons ban in 1994, but it expired 10 years later, and Democrats have not had the support to pass another measure of its kind. And that ban had a serious effect on shootings when it went into play in 94. During the debate on the House floor, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said the common sense reform in the bill will save the lives of law enforcement officers and innocent Americans across the country. But of course, you know, the Republicans don't give fuck all about that. A moment of silence is not enough. I should have counted how many moments of silence we've had on this floor this year and lamented the loss of children and elderly people and everybody in between because of a weapon that is designed to kill a lot of people quickly. No more moments of silence. Let's act, he said. Now, of course, Representative Jim Jordan had to give his two fucking cents. He's a ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, but not for long. This fucker's probably going to get expelled. However, he argued that the measure was unconstitutional and asserted that the bill won't make communities safer. Democrats tried this ban before. It didn't work. That's a lie. It did work. It won't work now, and you know what it'll do. It'll make communities, I think, less safe. (laughs) You want to ban assault rifles, and if we ban assault rifles— The cities are going to be less safe. Come on, motherfucker. This bill is wrong, and it will make communities, I think, less safe. And it's unconstitutional, he added. You know what's funny about this? They say it's unconstitutional. But at the same time, they talk about abortion and the Roe v. Wade situation. And they said, you know, in the Constitution, they don't mention abortion, so it's not a thing. Well, in the Constitution, it doesn't mention assault rifles either, so the same could be said for that. Now, the vote on assault weapons ban is the latest firearm-related legislation that the House has passed following a string of mass shootings that have plagued the country. But again, it's not likely to go anywhere in the Senate. They're just trying to expose people for who they are. Last month, the House and Senate both cleared a gun safety bill in a bipartisan manner, which President Biden signed into law, but we know that is a weak-ass bill. It's really not going to do anything to save anybody's fucking lives. It was just to show people that, yeah, we're worried about this. We're woke about this, so we're going to do something. But the fact of the matter is what they did, did fucking nothing. Certainly not enough compared to the problems we have. The measure enhanced background checks for gun purchasers age 18 to 21 and established a federal offense for individuals obtaining firearms through straw purchases or trafficking, among other provisions. Now, those are good causes, but that's not going to stop people from getting killed. 
you've got to take this a lot farther. And, and you know, that's that's basically what the House is trying to do. The sad thing is they know it's not going to pass through the Senate. So all we're really doing here is not saving lives. We're just exposing the fucking pieces of shit for who they are. And hopefully that means less of them will get voted in to office. And then once we're through the midterms and presuming that the Senate and the House have bigger Democratic margins, then they can get to doing some real business and important things to save people's lives. That's all they can do at this point. I'm not even going to argue with them. You know, they, they, they've they been shut out all this time. They did get to uh, hoodwink uh, Mitch McConnell, but they're not going to be able to do that again. Mitch McConnell is going to be very cautious about doing anything and agreeing with any terms with them now, now that the Democrats have fooled him. All right, next up, volatile former White House strategist Steve Bannon, who will be headed to jail sometime soon. I don't know if you knew this, but he once threatened to break Jared Kushner in half when they work together in the West Wing. Donald Trump's son-in-law has revealed in his upcoming book. Oh, great. Jared Kushner has a book. How much of that is going to be truthful? Bannon contributed to a toxic atmosphere in the turbulent West Wing during Trump's tenure in the Oval Office, according to Kushner's book. Breaking History, a White House memoir, which is due out next month. He no doubt got a shitload of money, and uh, much like everybody else, he's probably not going to sell many of them. Kushner, who was a uh, senior White House advisor at the time, said that Bannon yelled at him and threatened him in the cabinet room after Gary Cohen told Kushner that Bannon had been leaking negative information about then-senior economic advisor. Steve, you got to stop leaking on Gary, Kushner scolded. Bannon, he recounted in his book, according to CNN, which has obtained a pre-release copy of the memoir, we're trying to build a team here. Bannon, according to Kushner, fired back that it was Cohen who was leaking harmful information about him. Jared, right now, you're the one undermining the president's agenda, Bannon said. Kushner recounted, he continued his eyes intense and voice escalating into a yell. And if you go against me, I will break you in half. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> uh, Steve's a little unhinged, and uh, that's not surprising to anybody. We've seen it. And this fucker will have all the opportunity to be unhinged for at least uh, as much as two years when he goes to fucking jail. And ain't nobody going to save him with a fucking pardon this time around. Kushner was cowed. He realized he was woefully unprepared to deal with Bannon, who had a black belt in the dark arts of media manipulation. He wrote according to CNN's account on the book. So, well, <laughs> Kushner's the skinny little guy who talks a good game but probably has no ability to back it up. Bannon's just a fucking bully who's also a coward who would ever actually do anything. Can you imagine if Bannon did something to Kushner? What Donald Trump might have done with that? Eh, probably wouldn't have gone very well. 
In another incident, after Kushner called the New York Times about a story involving Bannon, the White House strategist exploded. How fucking dare you leak on me? If you leak out on me, I can leak out on you 28 ways from Sunday. Oh, yeah, the threat. Bannon told him, Kushner recalled in the book, according to CNN, Kushner also noted in his book that Trump eventually soured on Bannon before firing him in 2017. Trump tweeted then that sloppy Steve cried when he got fired and begged for his job. Trump also said Bannon has been dumped like a dog by almost everyone. Too bad. He mocked, mourned. So the question is, how are they buddies now? Why is Bannon still supporting Donald Trump after that fucking shit show? Kushner joked to a friend at the time that Bannon's firing was one of the biggest accomplishments, his biggest accomplishments in the White House. Bannon could not immediately be reached for comment since his explosion at Kushner. Bannon has often publicly displayed some of his black belt in media invective. Now, earlier this week, he called, you remember this, he called on 4,000 shock troops to deconstruct the government brick by brick. One of his War Room podcasts, it was exposed there. He was found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress, we know that, for ignoring his subpoena to testify before the House Select Committee investigating the the insurrection. Now, Bannon, (laughs) he vowed to go medieval on his enemies when he was served with a subpoena last year, and he said he would make the charges against him the misdemeanor from hell for the Biden administration instead of, instead, uh, he didn't even take the stand in his defense. They didn't even put up a defense. The jury determined he was guilty after deliberating more than three hours. I like that term. I'm going to go medieval. I think that uh, that's a quote for Samuel L. Jackson in in, uh, um, what's the movie, uh, Pulp Fiction. I think that's where it comes from. We're going to go medieval on your ass. Maybe it's not from that one, but I think it is Samuel Jackson. <laughs> and, of course, Steve Bannon grabs it like he's a fucking tough guy. He's <sighs> Steve Bannon. And I am so looking forward to him going to jail and hear his whining bullshit. I mean, this guy's so arrogant that he's ranting and raving how he's going to go medieval and he's going to expose these people and it's going to be the misdemeanor from hell. He gets convicted. He walks out. And what does he do? He still can't admit that he's wrong. He comes out and says, well, we lost the battle, but now we're going to win the war. No, motherfucker, you're going to jail. You're done. You're inconsequential now. Nobody cares about you. Clearly, Democrats don't like you, and now the Republicans don't want to get anywhere near you. Sorry, Steve, you're fucking done. Here's somebody who should be done, and hopefully at some point in the not-too-distant future will be done, but I don't know. Justice, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. A Supreme Court justice, of all people, mocked foreign leaders. Criticism of the Supreme Court decision he authored overturning a constitutional right to, the, to abortion. In his first public comment since last month's ruling, the justice remarks drew more criticism as well as some support, some support from dipshits. 
Now, he was speaking in Rome at a religious liberty summit. Alito's, what's he like, 72 years old, spent only a couple of minutes on the subject of abortion and then only to discuss his foreign critics, an unusual step for a high court justice. Now, he was all spiffed up in a tuxedo and sporting a beard. He sometimes grows when the court is out of session. Alito quipped that the ruling he authored had been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders, then joked that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had paid the price for his comments. Johnson called the decision a big step backward shortly before stepping down amid unrelated ethics investigations. So you see what he's doing. He's doing the same thing Donald Trump does. He's taking credit. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson steps down because he spoke out against me. Now, that's not at all true. He stepped down for any number of reasons. I mean, to be perfectly honest, when he first came in and Donald Trump came in, they likened Boris Johnson to Donald Trump. Uh, Boris Johnson needed to be walked out the fucking door, and he was. The decision by the court's conservative majority led roughly a dozen states to shut down or severely restrict abortions within days. Eventually, half of the U.S. states are expected to ban them. Now, Alito also drew some laughs from the audience at the conference sponsored by Notre Dame Law School when he said, What really wounded me were remarks made by Britain's Prince Harry speaking to the United Nations last week. Harry talked about the rolling back of the constitutional rights here in the United States as one of the series of converging crises that also included the Russian invasion of Ukraine. French President uh, Macron and Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau also drew Alito's attention in the talk he gave in Rome on July 21st at the invitation-only event. Now, the law school posted the video this week. Alito was not identified in advance as a speaker at the conference. Johnson's office didn't respond to his bullshit. Trudeau's press secretary, Cecily Roy, said he would always stand up for women's constitutional rights, including the right to choose and access abortion. Now, justices routinely engage in pointed exchanges with other colleagues and dueling opinions, but they rarely respond to outside critics. That's what's weird about this. This is, again, the arrogance of the Republican Party. They can't, be, they can't handle being questioned or told they are wrong. And it always gets them in trouble when they start flapping their gums. And of all people, the Supreme Court justice doesn't know when to fucking shut up. That's especially true when talking about foreign leaders in an appearance outside the U.S., said Neil Siegel, a professor of law and political science at Duke Law. His tone can be quite dismissive and scathing. It is as if he simply doesn't care that there are tens of millions of people in the country and abroad who disagree with him profoundly. Uh, I think the most important thing is that This is not how our justices are supposed to behave. And that's right. We expect our justices to be above it all, to be professional, to deal with just the rule of law as opposed to rhetoric and ideology. 
And this is the biggest problem we have with our Supreme Court right now. We have somebody like Alito who doesn't have a fucking clue how to be a Supreme Court justice. And then we have Clarence Thomas, who happens to be married to an insurrectionist, has the same ideology that said insurrectionist has, and makes some horrible decisions on the court. It goes back to what I've said before. If we don't have integrity and trust in our Supreme Court, then we no longer have a Supreme Court. Then what is the point? And this is a very important issue because the Supreme Court is one third or one of the three branches of government in this country. We have a crisis going on with all our branches at this point. The Supreme Court seems to be tainted. Congress, with people who helped to facilitate and and plan the insurrection, that is tainted. The time that Donald Trump spent in office with what we're hearing now, the presidential, the executive branch was tainted too. I don't think people understand how damaged this country has been. Every branch in our government has been affected by corruption and criminality. Now, to fix this all and straighten it out is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of time, but we got to start now. We can't just let Clarence Thomas and Alito run willy-nilly and roughshod over every fucking thing. There should be some rules that even Supreme Court justices have to follow. That was the crazy thing about this. After this all happened, somebody came out and said, well, you know, we maybe should have a code of ethics in the Supreme Court. What? There's no code of ethics. You've let them run roughshod and do whatever the fuck they want. I mean, yes, they're Supreme Court justices, but they are also humans. They are fallible and they are subject to being corrupted. And clearly our Supreme Court has been corrupted. So, yeah, we should have some code of ethics. But if you're going to have code of ethics, there's got to be some accountability, some punishment for people who don't fall in line with those code of ethics. And as long as the Supreme Court has ultimate power, nobody can touch them. It's much like the Congress when it comes to term limits. They aren't going to work against themselves and vote for term limits, so it'll never happen. They have too much power and too much control over themselves. There has to be some accountability. There has to be some transparency. Somebody above them has to be able to put them in line or expel them from office if we expect them to act honestly. We know what power does. It corrupts. And we are seeing a lot of corruption in the Supreme Court and in Congress. And we saw plenty of corruption in the executive branch, in the presidential office. We've got a lot of fixing to do, and we aren't even starting to fix it. The closest thing we did was get Donald Trump out of office and get Joe Biden in. Now, he may not be the best choice as president when it's all said and done, but at least we dumped a lot of corruption and criminality out when we kicked Donald Trump out. Now we need a president who's actually going to get things done. We hope that's Joe Biden, but there are some signs that he's not going to be as strong as we'd hoped. So if Joe Biden comes in, settles things down, and then in 2024 we elect a Democratic president that will actually get things done, so be it. Better than having Donald Trump in here, but all the um, toxicity Donald Trump left behind is really causing us a lot of problems. We have members of Congress, sitting members of Congress, that should not be there. They should be gone. They should be expelled, yet they're still there.
We have a postal service that was tainted when Donald Trump um, put a corrupt asshole in charge of it. We need to get that straightened out, but that has yet to be straightened out, too. We have the Supreme Court with Clarence Thomas, Alito, and and uh, Kavanaugh, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett. These people should not be in the Supreme Court. They are not qualified. They're not mentally at the point they need to be to be in the Supreme Court. They have uh, their partisan, which should be the last thing a Supreme Court justice is. So, man, we got a lot of work to fix here. And I'll be honest, Joe Biden's not going to be able to fix everything. All we can kind of do is get everything lined up, settle things down, and then when the next president, whoever that may be, comes in, hopefully we can start straightening things out. The first step is to win the midterms and give Democrats in Congress more power. Once they have more power, then we can start to get things done. But even after two years of of Democrats being in power, assuming that happens, that's not going to be enough. There's a lot of damage to be corrected, and it's going to take some work, and it's going to take people like you and me out there voting in mass so the Republicans don't ever get a chance to fuck things up like this again. All right. We are going to wrap things up for the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to me. I hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. And again tomorrow, we have the listener uh, episode, and uh, it's going to be a good one. So be sure to check it out. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.